<clears throat> nobody, 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 nobody. Nobody rage short stories. <laughs> Hi everyone, I'm Jeremy. And I'm Megan. And you're watching Nobody Read Short Stories. We're actually doing short stories again. Yes, tonight is a very special night because we are back to doing full episodes with full stories. And uh, it is the premiere of season two of Nobody Read Short Stories. Woohoo! You can find all of our full episodes from season one and all of our cranky talks on our website, nobodyreadshortstories.com. So tonight we have a very special story written by my wonderful co-host, Jeremy Ray, called The Gatherings. And in honor of the festive season, it is a uh, thriller and it is going to be read by the wonderful Jasmine Meadows. Just a heads up, it's going to be 90 minutes in length. Um, so if that's not something you guys are ready for, we are on podcasts, Spotify, Apple, Amazon, and Stitcher. And the other warning, Megan? Oh yeah, just to give you a, a, a quick warning, there are some violent depictions in this story. So if that's not your jam, um, you know, feel free to, to sit this one out. And oh. without further ado, here is uh, Jasmine. Break a leg, Jasmine. Thank you. <laughs> this is The Gatherings by Jeremy Ray. The vines appear to have wiped out all of human civilization. Not just civilization, everything. They've taken everything. It took less than 24 hours for the invasion to happen. Invasion feels wrong somehow. It's certainly not a nice word, but I need a word that brings on a particular kind of terror. Does a word even exist that can do justice to the apocalypse I lived through? When it started, it was like a pandemic, except whatever this infection is did not seem to behave like an outbreak of any virus or bacteria our planet has seen before. The word plague conveys the dread of it, but there is no word, at least in the English language, that brings on the correct connotation of sheer horror. It started with the gatherings. I was wrong. There is something that evokes the horror. Writing those two words makes the pen shake in my hand. The gatherings will live in infamy as long as humankind exists, but who knows how long that will be. A group of five others and I have jumped from house to house, scavenging. We decided to come back here to this old two-story house and sleep, no, shelter for the night. They're taking shifts to keep watch, but I'm sure none of them are sleeping if, like me, they nod off to the nightmares of what happened. We turned back to this house because it seemed less entangled in vines. Like the one house untouched in a tornado destruction zone, this one seemed to be chosen to remain intact, mostly. Sure, a vine has broken through here and there, but not to the degree of the other houses. If you pinch your nose, you can hardly smell the stench of decay in the air emitted from the vines and all the life forms they have consumed. In most of the rooms, anyway. I'm in the study 
There's a broken window that brings in the vine smells from outside. In the attic where the others are staying, there's only the faintest scent of death. I assume that's why the others chose to rest there. They say that I'm being unsafe, but I'd rather see my foe coming than be surprised once again. I bet you, dear reader, are wondering why I'm not staying with the others in the attic, in the room they call the secure room. One, human civilization may be wiped out, but that doesn't change the fact that the five people remaining that we know of are strangers to me. Two, they're fucking morons. There's no such thing as a secure room anymore. And three, this paper and pen. I don't expect the others to understand, but maybe you will. When I looked into the study, saw the desk, the paper, and pen, it gives me the same feeling, no, illusion of control they get with their guns. Each of them wears armor that consists of motorcycle helmets, bicycle pads for the elbows and knees, and any other sports gear they can get on themselves. They all have guns and knives strapped on every part of their bodies, it seems, including even the 70-year-old woman, a retired kindergarten teacher. They look ridiculous. I have the urge to laugh every time one of them shows the other how to improve their fighting skills. None of them have experience with fighting, but I resist the urge. If their protection makes them stand straighter, feel safer, who am I to take that away? If they want to pretend they're action heroes, more power to them. It's just not my gig. Writing was my only talent on this planet. I can't tell you how happy I was when we discovered the study. I never thought I'd get the chance to write again, and then I saw this pen and this paper on this desk. So here I scribble away, maybe for the last time. We're surely a doomed species, but I'd like to be able to share my knowledge with someone on the off chance anyone survives and finds these pages. I'd be lying if I said the broken window and the sour smell of decay doesn't make me uncomfortable. The lighter the night gets, the more I smell them. I'm wasting too much time leading into the story. My editor would be pissed if she were alive. Emily, get straight to the juice of the story, Shirley would say. But she's not here. And I'm pretty sure she and all human civilization have been wiped out, so I can do whatever I want. But, Shirley, in your memory, I'll get to it. Please forgive me in advance for any typos, corrections, and any times I may backtrack in the story. I'm a writer who depends on edits to make my work good, and I'm afraid there's no time for that. Some people mentioned how strange it was that celebrities, politicians, and other prominent figures started advocating for a day of unity that they called the gatherings. It was set to happen September 21st to celebrate the International Day of Peace. People all around the world were told to hold hands at 12 p.m. Greenwich Mean Time, but nobody knew whose idea it was. 
the idea seemed to emerge, no, sprout at the same time all across the globe. But it made sense. There was such a social discord that the idea was a relief. Sure, there were conspiracy theorists who said it was a plot of the Illuminati, but most people didn't question it. And I had thought that was strange, especially since some people, we in California, for example, were getting bad deals on time. Who in their right mind wants to wake up at 5 a.m. to hold hands with strangers? Not this girl. But the time was never debated, and since I didn't hear anyone else, no, anyone but crazies, questioning it, I rationalized it away too. You probably already know this, but we are, no, we were living in politically turbulent times. Our national leaders had been behaving like petulant children, one country hacking into another, infecting the populace with lies and false information about each other. It was exhausting. People, people were fatigued. We yearned for relief from all the negativity and people holding hands across the world seemed right. It is, it was such a beautiful picture to imagine. At least it was before the gatherings happened. I had no intention of going. I was perfectly fine waking up and watching them on TV, no, from the safety of my home. I'm not much of a people person. I guess I'm the stereotypical writer who locks herself away from society. The thought of talking to strangers makes me want to curl up in a ball like a roly-poly. Monica, my yoga instructor, invited me to the Rover Park gathering. God, that feels like ages ago. But it was only two days ago. She asked me in the middle of class. Yes, I, the misanthrope, went to those because of Monica. Monica was my polar opposite. She was... Tall, perfectly toned, but also somehow shapely. You know, the type of person you enjoy hating. And two years ago, when Monica handed me her flyer on the street, I had every intention of telling this drop-dead gorgeous woman where she could shove it. I was really looking forward to it, too. Until I looked at her face. She was smiling at me. It was such a fragile expression, like... She had to endure many years of pain to be able to smile at me that way. It just seemed wrong to tear it down. I had no intention of going. I threw her flyer away about five times along my way home. Somehow it kept ending back up in my hands. When I did go, I told myself I was just going to confirm it was awful. But besides having to be around everyone else in the class... It wasn't awful. Monica made it quite a nice place to be. Still, once class was over, I had no intention of returning, but when I was leaving, Monica flashed that fragile smile at me and thanked me for coming. Every week I tried to resist going, tried to stay home, but then I would picture her there, waiting for me with that smile. I... I'm sure her class would continue as usual without me, but what if there was the chance that my absence made her smile go away? Like clockwork, I was always 15 minutes early.
somewhere along the line, I started going two and three classes a week. And suddenly I was no longer pudgy. Sure, I was small and still built like a garden gnome, but a cute one that felt better about herself. There were plenty of sunshine girls like her in class, and yet she seemed to gravitate to me, the curmudgeon. <laughs> Emily, she whispered while we're all in our bound half moons. I've got this ticket to the Rover Park gathering. It's in a private apple orchard. Will you be my plus one? <laughs> I knew from the tone of her voice that she had that smile on her face. I wanted to keep my eyes down, lie, say I had 5 a.m. plans. Who has 5 a.m. plans? But the sucker I am, I looked over and fell, like I always did, for Micah. Rover Park was beautiful. The gathering was set up on this clearing as big as a football field. It was surrounded on one side by the apple orchard with the reddest apples you could ever imagine, and the other side by woods. I felt deeply unsettled looking at it all and was confused as to why. I assumed it was the flocks of people getting out of their cars and heading over to the clearing and my dread knowing we'd have to be amongst all of these strangers, but maybe I sensed something was wrong even then. I almost told Monica I wasn't feeling well and I was going to Uber home, but then she offered me one of her sweatshirts. It was chilly. Most people came with jackets. I came underprepared. She handed me a gray one. It smelled like chamomile tea. On the back was written, release the things that no longer serve you. You could feel the excitement as Mayor Laszlo stepped on up onto the podium. He was a square-built, rosy-cheeked man that kind of looked like a penguin. Look around you, he commanded. And we did. Remember these faces. We came here as individuals. We leave as one. Mayor Laszlo's voice was dark, rich, commanding, destined for beautiful speeches. When the cheering died down, he continued. As individuals, we accomplish nothing. United, we can conquer the world. Even more cheers. Monica grabbed my hand and swung it in the air as she screamed. I was too distracted by all the people smiling at me to scream with her. I was waiting for someone to make uncomfortable small talk with me so I would have an excuse to snap at them. It was early, and as I've mentioned, I'm not a people person. But that moment never came. The more Mary Laszlo spoke, the more people cheered. The more the sense of connection swept over everyone, including anti-social me. I felt at one with nature, the world, and humanity. And that in itself should have been my first red flag because I am a misanthrope through and through. Monica, you and me, we could change the world for better. I said to her without even a hint of sardonic irony, I'm famous for, I meant it. I was saying that crap and I wasn't even on drugs. When the sun peeked up past the horizon, so too started the impromptu dancing. Hundreds and hundreds of people swinging each other about and humming a tune that I also had stuck in my head. And it was in my head because it wasn't like there was a live recording 
of music playing. I mean, it was as if we all had Bluetooth earpieces in and were listening to the same radio station. I remember thinking, how did they do that? How did these people hear the random tune in my head? We were connected. As the sun rose, they danced and seemed to be more and more taken over. The melody they hummed, the same song in my head was so unified, as if these strangers were a choir that had practiced for years. I didn't dance with them, but I did tie the, no, her sweatshirt around my waist and bobbed my head along to the hums. I was a devout atheist, still am, especially after everything that happened. But at a moment, at that moment, I felt like I was part of something greater than myself. I felt the presence of something and understood why religious fanatics get that weird, glassy-eyed, culty look when they're worshiping God. I'm sure my face wore that very look, but what they, no, we were experiencing wasn't God. It was a song of lies, like the sirens in the Odyssey. Maybe that's why I survived. I didn't fall completely for the song of oneness because I very much love being an individual. The spell was broken for me when I saw the mayor bite into a dancing woman's neck. It was far away and it happened so quickly that I thought I might have imagined it. I did a double take. She was still smiling serenely, but the thoughts Doubts and rationalizations of what I had just seen were loud enough that they diluted the song in my head. Then I watched Mayor Laszlo bite someone else. A man this time. And the woman whom the mayor had originally bitten dug her teeth into some, someone too. And their victims bit into the necks of other people. At that time, I didn't know that they were drawing blood they were in the middle of the gathering too far away. Plus, once bitten, the dancer started spinning ridiculously fast like they were ballerinas on meth. The bites continued, starting from the center of the gathering with Mayor Laszlo and spreading outward on all sides. As the biting spread out, so did the people twirling like tops. Monica and I were on the outskirts of the gathering. She was blissfully unaware. Her eyes were closed and... She smiled as if she were experiencing the world's best acid trip. I didn't want to wake her up, disturb the trip. I still doubted the wave of biting coming at us. I thought maybe it was some symbolic ritual that Monica had failed to prepare me for. My first moment of panic was when some of those infected were close enough for me to see their faces. Shit. I forgot to mention something. I think my mind tried to blot it out because I was it was so disturbing. Yes, the infected dancers would spin in unison, but occasionally they'd abruptly stop, also in unison. When the victims were near enough for me to make out details, I could tell something was wrong. Their faces were pale and sickly like they had the flu, but the more they spun, the more they bit, the more their skin changed. They started to look like putrid grapes. No, 
engorged ticks. And while they were spinning, some of these engorged things burst and their flesh soared through the air in every direction. What was left were people that looked like spinning meat spits. I just stood there, dumbfounded. I mean, it was so absurd. Dear reader, if you're alive and able to read this, I'm sure you live in a time where you have conditioned yourself and see this new world as normal, but just a day ago, my world was very different with very different norms. Seeing body, body parts spin off people broke natural laws I didn't even know existed until I saw bits and pieces of humanity flying through the air. Even if the group of us managed, manages to survive, life will never be the same. Everyone I love is gone. My mom, my grandmother, my three cats. Life seemed fuck up, fucked up at the time, but it's not really fucked up until you have your whole world completely destroyed. Where was I? That's right. The spinning people and me just standing there, not believing what I was seeing. I remember looking around at Monica and the other normal people around me, not yet spinning violently. They were too entranced by the song to notice what was coming at them. No, coming at us. I'm horrified that we were taken over so easily. I wish I would have acted sooner. If I had tried to wake them up, then maybe I wouldn't be the only one alive from the rover gathering. But I was too scared. Not of what I was seeing, but of what I thought people might say if I stopped them. We're genetically programmed to be pack animals. That's a fact. And I know this sounds dumb and it's not a reasonable excuse, but I was afraid to interrupt that song and be seen as an outsider to the group. I didn't want to be that loser that shuts down the party. But things change when the skin of someone's face lands on your head and you have to pick guts out of your hair. I shook Monica like a rag doll. The spinning dancers were closer then, and it was raining body parts all around us. She opened her eyes. Her lovely blue eyes went from twinkling things to pupils that wouldn't stop dilating as they tried to take in the horror. I had woken her up from her peaceful dream and welcomed her to my nightmare. I can't get the image of her long blonde hair out of my head. She looked like an angel, a terrified angel I had personally dragged to hell. I had this strong desire to protect her from what she was seeing. I didn't realize until that moment that I had feelings for Monica. Monica sprang into actions far faster than I had. She started screaming and trying to shake awake the people around us. I followed suit, but for the most part, it was no use. The hum inside their heads, the hum all around us was so loud. They'd wake up for a moment and go back into the trance. We, we did have success with the children. Those poor kids. When we got them awake, they started to cry. I, I'm ashamed to say I slapped them. There was just no time for human emotions. I pushed them out of the gathering and screamed, run, hide, climb the trees. I kept saying this as Monica and I ran across the clearing towards the woods, trying to take our own advice. We were screaming, the children were screaming, but it was all drowned out by the song of hundreds. Monica tried to go back for the kids, but they were too far away. 
It hurts me to say, but the kids didn't make it. They weren't fast enough. They were bitten like the people of the field. They weren't bitten like the people of the field. They were devoured. We should have let them, those kids, remain in the song. But how are we supposed to know? The people of the gathering took bites out of them like piranhas. And once the children had been gnawed down to the bone, all the singing stopped. Monica and I managed to make it to a giant greenhouse made of glass panes near the side of the field where the woods began. Inside the entrance, right at the front, was a water feature resembling an old-timey well. It could have come straight out of a brother's grim fairy tale. It was filled with water and had a layer of algae floating on top. Inside the greenhouse was every vegetable you could imagine organized into neat rows. I had first seen the greenhouse as Monica and I drove down the gravel road to the orchard. With the beautiful trees surrounding it, it looked like something out of the Wizard of Oz. Each pane of glass caught the light as our car went by and danced in every shifting rainbow hues. We had said it was a shame there were already 15 minutes late for the gathering. Otherwise, we would have checked it out. Now here we are. The glass panes were no longer whimsical. Through them, we could see the carnage. What had once been people were now things that looked like walking raw ground beef. For the sake of clarity, I'll call them meat zombies. Through the glass, we saw the meat zombies silently grab each other's hands. They seemed to communicate without words. They turned into unison. They turned in unison and started to walk towards the greenhouse. Monica grabbed my hand and forced me to duck down beside her in the aisle. We couldn't see, but we could hear them marching. Their feet moved in unison. The door at the other end of the greenhouse had an ugly chain swirled around the handles. This meant the only way out was the entrance we came in from, and it appeared the meat zombies were heading straight for it. The marching was getting louder, closer. What should we do, Emily? She whispered. I scrambled to check my phone. All the news outlets had articles. All were written no longer than an hour ago. I randomly clicked on one. I immediately got chills. It was the number of typos in the article that terrified me. As a blogger, I knew no good journalist would release articles of such poor quality unless they feared the end of the world was near. The articles confirmed it. Lockdown, global collapse, wipeout, apocalyptic, extinction by vines. Monica, did you see any vines? She looked at me confused. What kind of vines? I typed into Google, vines, apocalypse. But before I could finish the word, my phone went black, which was weird because I had fully charged it before we left that morning. Shit, I said. My phone died. No, it didn't. She was staring down at hers, her face pale. She held it up, showing me she had the same dead screen. Neither of us knew this would be the last time we'd ever connect to technology. Before she could say anything more, I thought I saw movement right outside the glass windows. 
and remained hunched, dragged Monica over to the well. I wasn't wrong. They were surrounding us. I could hear the feet of hundreds of people moving in unison around the greenhouse. Then they stopped. Silence. It was probably no longer than three seconds, but it felt as though it went on for eternity. Then the greenhouse door creaked as it slowly swung open. We both lowered ourselves to our hands and knees and crawled, searching for somewhere to hide together. But there was nothing. Monica hid behind a dense clump of vegetables, and I was forced to crawl back to the well. Monica wouldn't have been able to fit into the well. Most other people wouldn't have been able to fit into that well, but I'm about the size of a 12-year-old child. I climbed into it, grateful for the first time in my life for my size. I submerged my body into the icy water, just as one of the meat zombies stumbled inside, sniffing the air. The water was deceptively deep for a decorative well. If there was a bottom, my feet couldn't find it. I paddled my feet and tried to keep the parts of me that were out of the water from splashing, doing my very best to have the above-water stillness of a duck. I could hear the meat zombies shuffle by the well and feared they would hear the water rippling. I dug my fingers into the slime-ridden brick and mortar of the well to anchor myself into place. One of my hands felt a gap where an old brick was missing. Light leaked through the well in multiple such areas. Lower and lower, I submerged myself until even my mouth was in the cold water that smelled like algae. There were mosquito larvae dancing about me. Normally I would have screamed, but I was more horrified by what was staggering in. I waited for the shuffling to stop. When it didn't, I peered through one of the gaps in the, to investigate. The meat zombies shuffled in a line, no, like ants? No, like people doing a fucked up conga line. They articulated their steps together like a creature with a thousand legs. No, like a giant centipede. That's what it was like, a giant meat centipede. Outside the greenhouse, the line continued and seemed to go on infinitely. It looked and moved like a giant beast. They were looking around the greenhouse as if they knew we were there. My eyes focused on the meat zombies, held hands. Their hands seemed to have a milky, glue-like liquid weeping from them. I looked over at Monica. Was she seeing what I was seeing? Through the vegetable leaves, I saw her. Her hands covered her mouth desperately, as if she couldn't trust herself not to scream. But she was not looking at the meat centipede. Her eyes were turned, looking at something I could not see from my vantage. I nearly screamed when it passed the gap. She had been looking at Mayor Laszlo. I could see him now, too. He was not connected to the zombies and walked past the meat centipede, looking around the greenhouse. He had a smile on his face and his arms were held behind him as if he was taking a, a leisurely stroll through his very own garden. The mayor abruptly stopped. He twisted his head around like an owl to look back into the direction of my well. His eyes were fixed, and even though I knew better, I was convinced he could see my eyes peering through the gap. Mayor Laszlo's cheeks were no longer rosy. 
and his skin was a hue of greenish-blue. But he could still pass as a human being. Sure, parts of his skin were missing, but seeing as he was the originator of it, of all the meat zombies, I'd say he held up pretty well. He kept looking at the well, his eyes fixed, unblinking. Eventually, I moved sideways away from the gap and lowered my head further into the water, just in case he was looking over because he could hear the water dripping off of me. The shuffling meat zombies suddenly stopped, and I shifted back to peer through the gap. They knew we were there. Their heads twitched to and fro with their mouths open as if they were tasting the air for us. I was convinced that some of the meat zombies were looking down at me in the well, but it was hard to say since none of them had eyes. I remained completely still. It's good to hear the thoughts of my people, Mayor Laszlo said. We have gathered here to be one. I didn't understand. It sounded like gibberish until I looked again at the held hands of the meat zombies. I'll never forget that moment. The milky liquid was gone. I saw something growing over the hands, rippling. The meat zombies' hands were melting, congealing into one another. They were becoming an actual giant meat centipede. We all had to come to the orchard to hold hands in symbolic unity, but these things wouldn't have been able to release their grips from one another if they tried, not anymore. That's when I understood. I had to cover my mouth from gasping. A chill ran up my spine. Mayor Laszlo's first words when he took the podium echoed in my mind. We came here as individuals. We leave as one. That was the true intention of the gatherings from the beginning. At that moment, I realized why the mayor and his thing were here in the greenhouse. No one was supposed to make it out of that gathering alive. Mayor Laszlo started walking deeper into the greenhouse. I was so thankful it was away from me, but it was, I was also worried because that meant he was walking closer to Monica and she was not as well hidden as I was. To say it didn't take long for Mayor Lasso to find her wouldn't be true. It took him no time at all. I think he knew the whole time where she was. He just walked over. I saw Monica push open one of the greenhouse windows. The meat centipede line on the outside of the greenhouse twisted and cocked their heads at the new opening. The heads closest to the opening sniffed. They could smell her. She tried another glass pane higher up, but at that point, Mayor, Mayor Laszlo grabbed hold of her. She screamed. I didn't understand it at the time, but it wasn't a scream of terror, more of pain. The meat zombies inside the greenhouse started chewing the air with hunger. If not for Mayor Laszlo, I'm 100% sure they would have devoured her. But he had a power over them, and they remained in place, lapping the air like dogs, waiting for their owner's command to eat their treat. I rose up from the well and was about to help my struggling friend when her eyes locked on my own. She shook her head ever so slightly until I stopped. Then she turned so as to not give away my location. 
She wore a determined expression I had never seen before. In movies, the hero has a look of fearlessness when he, sadly, almost always he in the movies, meets his fate. But in those seconds, those moments, Monica gave her life for mine. I saw so many emotions fight for a chance to be on her face. Anger, sadness, grief, even bravery. But the one she kept coming back to was terror. I'll give you a choice, Mayor Laszlo cooed. Rejoin our song and be with us in peace forever. Or be consumed as a separate. I saw her arms swelling up where Mayor Laszlo held on, and it in that instant I was willing to disobey her wish and save her. I swung my arm over the well, but then Monica smiled, that fragile smile. She was no longer looking in my direction, but I knew it was for me. There were monsters all around her, but I knew if I went to her, I would be the one to take her smile away. I stayed in place. Instead, I tried to memorize that smile, but there wasn't enough time. She closed her eyes and tears pushed out of them down her face as she began to hum the song of the gathering. The mayor and the heads of the meat centipede started humming it too. The fragile smile didn't break, it faded. I'd never see it again. Mayor Laszlo gently grabbed her and placed her back directly against the front of the meat centipede. The creature took its left arm free because it, was, it wasn't linked with another zombie and wrapped it around my friend like a romantic embrace where it held her. Something rippled into her skin, and it seemed as though she stopped the song to scream. It's okay. Just swim in the song, Mayor Laszlo said, as if he was talking to a child. No. To his beloved one, only daughter. You are blessed to be at the end, next to the head. He smiled as if what he said made any sense. And maybe it did to her because she nodded. She fell into the song. Mayor Laszlo moved around her and adjusted her as if to make sure she was securely anchored in place. Then he positioned himself directly in front of her, facing forward, and pressed his back into her chest. I thought I saw roots shooting out of Mayor Laszlo into her. But even if that were so, I didn't see any more pain on her face. She smiled. No, she wore a smile. It was wrong, somehow. There was nothing behind it. Whatever he was doing was taking my friend away from me. I love your thoughts, the mayor said as he writhed in front of her. I love seeing the memories of my people. Those were the last words he spoke. I thought about running to her, pulling her away as he flailed, but it was as if she could hear my thoughts. Don't, she commanded. It's not eating me, it's assimilating me. She groaned then and fell back into the song. Mayor Laszlo sang too. If you could still call him that, his skin ripped at the seams. 
like a garment revealing no human anatomy underneath. There was no muscle, tissue, skin, nor organs. Rather, a tightly packed bundle of tubes twisted and spun around each other like a pit of snakes, meat snakes. The transformation happened so fast from there, the outer layer of the meat zombies bubbled like plastic melting in the sun, grew so thick over the interlocking hands that it made it look like a, a worm. Connected to the front of Monaco where Mary Lasso had been was now the twisting bundle of meat snakes. They were also clearly inside of her. They writhed inside her chest and abdomen, twisting and growing. Was this the head of some giant parasite? While both ends of this thing merged with her, Monica sang. Yes, it was horrifying, nightmares, tragic, but would have also been beautiful in its unworldliness if it wasn't for the fact that it was my friend this thing was enveloping. Her skin was translucent. I could almost make out something that shouldn't be there inside of her. I'm, I'm so sorry I wanted to say. I was forced to watch the things crawling, writhing beneath her skin, making her skin look like a rubbery mask, no thinner, like bubblegum being stretched out for the first time. For the, for the first time by a tongue. Fuck these vines. Fuck them. I watched as her legs, arms, collapsed like a rubber glove disappearing into the meatworm until all that was left was her outer layer of skin like a giant sticker wrapped around the worm. The more Monica disappeared, the more it seemed okay for me to listen to the song. It putting me into a trance as Monica's skin was sucked up by the worm. I don't know how it was able to still make a tune with the mayor and Monica. Maybe it was all in my head. Either way, I lost myself completely to the song as the tubular monstrosity transformed the raw meat of it, so pink and rough, flattened turned green and shone like the outer layer of a plant. Darker green markings emerged, giving this thing a watermelon pattern. Had I remained a moment longer in the well, lost in that song, I'm sure I would be dead. But a tiny thought echoed somewhere inside my head. Extinction by vines. The article. Something I had read, I was not this thing. The song was not peace. It was the thing that had taken peace away. Dum, dum. The song I heard sounded different than the song playing at the same time in my head. I think the song translates to the real world differently when it's sung by a giant vine. Dum, 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 dum. A dreadful, low throbbing. I could feel vibrations of notes that I couldn't hear, as if the sound was too low for human ears. The notes made the ground shudder like an earthquake. The glass panels of the greenhouse rattled like it housed a hundred bass amplifiers. And the creature grew. 
It was like watching a balloon inflate. If you can imagine a balloon six feet thick and thousands of feet long. I don't have visual memories of the next moments, just blackness. Like the screen of a television going blank while the sound continues to play. I hear the glass of the greenhouse bursting. I heard the sound of my my breathing, panting, running for my life across the level ground of the clearing, back to the orchard. I heard my high school track coach yelling, Run, Emily! Faster, faster! You've got this! You're beating your own record time! All it took was being chased by a giant vine. As it chased me, I felt the ground shake. It's booming. Dum, dum. Undulated the air around me, like it wasn't merely sound, but some kind of substance. I felt it on my skin like water. The vibration grew thicker on my skin, and I knew it was closing in. At the last minute, I twisted in my run like a jackrabbit and ran back in the direction of the woods while it continued to the apple orchard. At that point, I remember a vague image of a deer that had been grazing on the fallen apples, staring up at the vine, frozen, eyes wide, uncomprehending. I climbed up the tallest tree in front of me. Not an apple tree. No, this was a giant oak tree in the woods on the other side of the field. The lowest branches were high up and any normal day I would not have been able to reach them if not for the adrenaline circulating in my blood. It put a spring in my, my jump. I leapt like a lemur and grabbed hold of a branch. Once I grabbed hold, I didn't look down, just kept climbing. The vines, dum-dum, traveled through the trees and made the leaves of their branches shake like giant maracas. Dum-dum. I heard the animals cry as the vine moved, no, hunted them down. I kept climbing not once looking down until I had made it all the way to the top. That oak tree was one of the tallest points in the park. From where I was, I could see the vine growing and ballooning up from one end to the other. I saw how it enveloped a galloping horse with its roots. It seemed to be attracted to anything that moved, including wind chimes that were hanging from a small gateway. The roots just grabbed a hold of them, and the chimes melted. Even when there was no longer movement besides the giant, still-growing vine, it bellowed its dum-dum into the air. I was temporarily confused when I heard the noise coming from another direction. And when I turned, I saw a vine, larger still, crawl into the field where we had been. It slithered over and rubbed against the smaller one like a, an aroused snake, both making their sounds in unison. I had seen a special about elephants once. Their low rumble can travel miles. Had it come because of the call? Another vine came soon after. Where were these vines coming from other gatherings? The ends of these things conjoined, forming an even larger monstrosity, and that's when a terrible thought came to me. Holy hell, maybe this thing is interlocking all over the world to form one giant vine. 
I just looked down, staring on in horror. The birds all around me in the tree were doing the same. That's right, the birds. They didn't seem to care that I was there. Some of them even stood on top of me. I think they were far more concerned with what they were seeing spreading over the ground. I don't know how long I looked down watching the giant vines. Nope. Vine. I'm not sure whether this thing is plural or singular, so please forgive me for bouncing back and forth between the two. I, I know it's confusing, but the vines are confusing. They pushed out smaller tendrils from their sides, which also grew and spread out. You see those vines, Emily? My grandpa had said when I was about 12 years old. I had been in awe looking up at the southern woods covered with vines that make it look like a rainforest right out of the jungle book. They're beautiful, I said. They're deadly. These vines are not indigenous. They're slowly leaching the life out of the all of these trees. And that's just what the giant alien thing was doing to the clearing, the orchard, and the woods. I could literally see them leeching the life out of things. From my vantage, about a half mile from the orchard, I watched as the giant vine siphoned the green out of the grass of the field like a kid sucking the last juice of the shaved ice of a Slurpee. They sucked like vampires. It was as if the vines had no plans of making a permanent home here. My grandfather had been so disgusted looking at the kudzu vine. What would he have felt if he were alive to see these? In less than an hour, all the grass was brown, crusty, dead. I watched the vines twist up the apple trees faster than snakes. And like the field in about a, an hour, the leaves shriveled and changed colors like in the fall. And the red apples faded to an ugly brown. And as they sucked the life from the orchard, those vines turned the most vibrant green I've ever seen. The color was so intense, they practically glowed. It was as if the world had become like a surrealist painting. But paintings you can look away from. Monica had taken me to a theatrical show called Paintings a month prior. <laughs> And I reflected back on this simpler time as the vines destroyed the park. Every week, this theater troupe recreates a painting, Monica said as we sat there, waiting, staring up at the red velvet curtains. The actors don't move a single muscle. It always takes my breath away. What painting? I asked. I'm annoyed that I was there, but her delight amused me. I don't know. Last week it was American Gothic by Grant Wood. But they don't tell you. It's always a surprise. How many shows have you seen? All of them. She smirked. The curtains opened, but my eyes were cast down looking at her hands on the armrest. For a moment, they had grazed. I looked up at her to see if she had noticed. She hadn't shown it. She studied the actors as though she were a little girl. There were little stars in her eyes, and her mouth was open in wonder. The painting was Primavera by Sandro Botticelli. The actors were under fruit trees, I think. Oranges? Beneath 
Their bare feet were all kinds of flowers. The actors were mainly beautiful women in see-through gowns, clasping hands and dancing under the trees of spring. But all wasn't well in these woods either. The girl at the far right corner was being grabbed from the tree by this blue demon thing, which I believe represented winter. Out of her mouth spewed flowers. Clasped hands, spewed flowers, dancing girls in the woods. The creepy correlations between that painting and the gatherings did not go unnoticed by me as I sat hiding up in that tree. Why that painting of all paintings? And only a month prior. Had it been picked by coincidence or was it a foreshadowing of the horrors to come? What if the gatherings had invaded by way of our psyches even then? Had I had an, any ominous feelings during the show? I don't think so. I was impressed with how still the actors were. I remember being fascinated by that for the first 15 minutes, but an hour of it felt pretentious. The tickets had been $50 and nothing was happening. So if I had any negative feelings, it would have been the price. But even then, it wasn't so bad. I spent most of the time looking at Monica watching the show. She was more beautiful than the stunning actors on stage combined. How her face would subtly change looking from actor to actor, taking it all in. Her eyes took the painting in as if it was cotton candy. Every so often, her eyebrows would crinkle as if she was trying to absorb every last detail. Something crashed in the park, and I forced myself to stop thinking of the show. I wanted to protect the memory. It was one of my last times with Monica, and, I, and it felt as though by reminiscing, I was holding it out for the vines to coil around and also take from me. I was upset with myself that I conjured up that memory at all. At the time, I feared I might be the only person alive, and there I was, letting an otherwise beautiful moment with Monica get tainted, covered in its own way by the vines. The memory tried to come back many times during those hours the vines took over. I suppose I was yearning for something good, and my subconscious was trying to give me that. Each time it tried, I pushed the offering away. I wanted to preserve the memory. No, nope. I wanted to save Monica from any future, from any further damage. In fact, I tried to protect all my memories of the normal world from the horrors of this new reality. They were my sacred relics. And they were in danger of being desecrated. If I survived, I wanted to keep those memories intact. No. Nope alive. So like a fucked up meditation, I pushed the memories away and only focused on the horror of the now. The thickest part of the vines was growing in the clearing and apple orchard, but thinner vines, and by thinner I mean six feet thick, were slithering everywhere. They were a light yellow green and were interwoven on the ground like the veins of a human circulatory system as far as the eye could see. I knew the vines were doing the same thing to the woods. It took about three hours for them to get to me, but I knew. Without looking down when they were there. 
I saw their movement by how the leaves and all the trees in their path turned brown. The brown seemed to move over the leaves like the flow of mud. I knew the exact moment they had reached my own because the oak leaves shriveled up and crackled like popcorn. Some of my bird friends launched into the air. When I finally got the courage to look down, I almost fainted out of that tree. The vines crept more slowly then. They reminded me of hesitant water droplets on the rim of a bathtub. I used to watch the droplets as a child as they would roll down with gravity, falter, zig and zag until finding a straight path down into my bath water. The vines did the same thing except they crept up the tree, defying gravity. Slow enough so I had hours to think about my demise, fast enough that I couldn't find time to make peace with it. Something about how the vines moved against gravity disoriented me as if the world was upside down and I would fall into the sky. So much so that I was worried I might pass out and actually tumble out of the tree. I untied Monica's sweatshirt still around my waist and tied myself to it. I closed my eyes and breathed. I didn't calm until I stopped thinking of myself as tethered to a tree and started imagining myself wrapped in a hug. I could hear the lower, branch, lower branches shaking as the vines must have been encircling them. I could smell the chamomile of Monica's sweatshirt. I conjured her voice. Inhale deeply. I did. Exhale deeply. I tried. But then I looked up at the sky. I guess I hoped that lifting my head up to look at the blue sky would give me comfort. The worldly blue of planet Earth was something that they surely couldn't take away, right? There was no blue sky. The sky was covered in birds. All kinds of birds. You don't know how many exist until you see most of them flying at the same time. I couldn't hear their flapping or their calls. I think it had something to do with the low vine dum-dums, drowning them out. I refused to look down, not out of fear, or not only out of fear, I should say, but because looking at the vines sickened me. I knew how close they were getting based on how many birds remained in the tree with me. The vines would shake the branches as they climbed higher, and the bir and birds, no longer comfortable with the proximity of the vines, would launch themselves into the air with their scared calls. At that time, I noticed that they were slowing down. I didn't know why at the time. I just knew they should have already gotten to me by then. There were only three birds left with me when the vines were actually in reach. I begged the three of them to stay with me. Don't go. They ignored my pleas and flew away. I felt abandoned, no. betrayed, because I couldn't fly. From there onward, I forced myself to look down at the horrible things twisting up my tree. I was determined to face my fate. I hoped it would make me make my last moments less scary. It wasn't just that, though. I had been up there a few hours, and I really had to urinate. I didn't think it was a good idea to let it fall on them. Instead, I portioned it out, let it trickle down places where it would not hit the vines. 
when my string dried, I let out a little more. I got the feeling that they didn't need my urine to know I was there. Every so often they'd stop their crawling and their tips would move around in the air like caterpillar heads as if trying to catch my scent. We went on that way for a while, me portioning my pee and them searching me out. As the sun lost its intensity around 5 p.m., the vines slowed to a snail's pace. They were only a few feet away. Thankfully, by that time, my bladder was empty. So many vines infested the tree by then. Green ropes twisted on top of green ropes, twisted on top of more green ropes, all with the same goal of getting to me. The darker it got, the more they slowed. I put two and two together. Like plants, this thing needs light to make energy. I was overjoyed by the idea that maybe it would be safe once night hit. The joy was momentary. The thickest part of the vine where the greenhouse had once been started rising like baking bread. The trees still standing behind the greenhouse bent, then broke, crashing to the ground. The now bulbous mass continued to rise, towering over everything. It resembled the head of an octopus and was the right portion to make the thrashing system of the vines look like its tentacles. This head, whatever you want to call it, split open like the bud of a flower, but instead of petals, grayish blue sacs spewed out. At first I thought maybe it was the vine defecating, but then I saw the sacs were moving. Had it given birth to something? The grayish blue pods convulsed on the ground before they tore open. I heard females singing and saw these things push out from the pods. They resembled women. I say resembled because their features were smudged as though my vision was out of focus, but no matter how much I squinted, they looked erased somehow, as if they were partially digested. For the sake of simplicity, I'll call them digested nymphs. The digested nymphs had bluish white skin, the moon, similar. Their legs were fused together, almost like a fin. They dragged themselves about the vine-ridden ground that had once been clearing, like mermaids. The nymphs scanned the trees, mainly near the octopus head, and when they spotted a movement, they'd point and break out into a chanting a weird sing-song, sing-songy way. How exciting, how exciting, how exciting. I was already struggling with the absurdity of the giant vine, so seeing the digested nymphs almost broke my brain. How were they able to speak human language? Why were they saying what they were saying at all, as... If that wasn't enough, the thicker yellow-green vines on the ground acted differently. No, behaved like a different species entirely. They were fast. They would focus on where the girls were pointing, and then they would stretch like and craned the, ne like the neck of a brontosaurus to grab the living things hiding behind the trees. By this point, I had been in the tree three hours. And hours assumed that they were... There was nothing left in any of the trees but me, but I watched vines grab hiding squirrels, a raccoon. One time one of the vines was even fast enough that it grabbed a bird attempting to take off. 
The things I was forced to witness were like a bad acid trip. No. They were like violent crimes to my sense of sight. The digested nymphs seemed to revel in the power they wielded. They moved from tree to tree, chanting, How exciting! How exciting! Eventually, they had nothing to chant because nothing was left in the trees. Except me. Had I gone insane or had the world around me? Back and forth, I'd go between the two possibilities. It felt as though I was spinning, caught, no, caught in a riptide. And I didn't know which way was up. I tried to calm down, think logically, breathe. But all three of those things felt impossible. I felt a tightening in my throat like a, a noose. No, like a python choking me out. But there was nothing. The vines in my tree were still a few feet away. What was wrapping around me, suffocating me, was nothing tangible. It was a feeling, one that I had never experienced before that day. Hysteria. The dum-dumming of the vine was no longer intense, but slow. Steady, like meditation music. But this didn't soothe me. If anything, it made the choking feeling worsened. I was tired of this thing changing, shifting, and I realized soon it would be dark. What would happen then when I couldn't see? The next part is vague. No, wait. I remember. It was just so painful that I blocked it out. It was the birds. Tired birds that couldn't flap their wings a moment longer started Falling from the sky, the yellow-green vines on the ground reached up and, and swayed about like dancing cobras waiting for the next tired bird to fall. When they did, the vines would stretch out like a baseball catcher's glove and grab the falling birds from the air. Every bird that fell from the sky felt like a blow. I tried to look away. Maybe if I didn't see that it was birds falling from the sky, it would be okay. Maybe if I pictured a rainstorm. I always found rainstorms soothing. Starts with a few droplets of water, then a trickle, then a light shower, then eventually becomes a full-on rainstorm. That same pattern was happening, but it wasn't soothing. I knew that the sound of the downpour this time was my bird's. Hundreds of vines swayed in the air, grabbing the birds before they fell to the ground. Still more writhed on the ground in a tangled orgy, devouring every fallen bird the erect vines didn't catch. Yes, the absurdity of the vines and the meat zombies and the digested nymphs were traumatic blows, but it was the death of the birds that finally ripped me apart. I understood the fatigue of the birds. I was... So tired, not just from being in that tree for hours, but from feeling so much terror for so long. After the fall of the birds, death didn't seem so bad. Eventually, the bird downpour stopped. The vines that had been reaching to grab the birds from the sky fell. 
as if they were tired of resisting gravity too. They plopped to the ground with thuds. The sky turned blood orange as if it was, if it too was dying. All around me, from the vines came the smell of death. The nymphs cheered. I was left with the sinking feeling that I was alone in this horrible place. The earth's single living earthling. I remember looking down at the vines in front of me and just staring at them. If they were still moving, it was too slow for the eye to see. They were so close, all I had to do was reach out and touch them. Reeling from the destruction all around me, the only thing that made earthly sense was that I must have lost my mind sometime in the morning when the world stopped behaving as it should. I heard the nymphs crawling while I just stared at the vines. Maybe being devoured by them was my only way back to the ordinary world. Maybe if I touched them and they consumed me, I would wake up and all this would have been a fucked up dream. And even if they were real and killed me, at, at least it would be all over. I wouldn't have to be alone with them. So I did. I reached out and touched the vines. Nothing happened. I tugged at them, trying to antagonize them to take into taking me, but absolutely nothing happened. I hung my head and wept. I tried to cry silently, but I'm sure I lost myself in it. Then I heard something moving beneath the tree. None of the other five survivors saw the woman, the nymphs at all, but I saw this one clearly. Her skin wasn't just colored like the moon, it was pitted like it too, scattered about it, scattered about it were these little clumps of green that swayed in the air unnaturally, very much like algae and water. Her legs were conjoined from the hips to the ankles, and below that was her two-foot-long bluish-white fin, vaguely resembling the tail of a dolphin, if a dolphin had been digested in acid. What once had been ten human toes were now thin, two-foot-long bones that supported thin blue membrane of tail skin, like the underlying bones that support the wings of a bat. It was horrifying. And yet I had the strangest impulse to giggle looking at her. You know that itchy, giggling, giggly feeling you get when something fucked up happens to someone? Like that YouTube video of the guy who nosedives into a pool just to find out that it's frozen. Yeah. I pushed that giggle away while at the same time tears were streaming down my face. Two more came to join her. They looked at each other and up at my tree. Was she asking her pals for a second and third opinion via telepathy? Hey, Cynthia and Patrice, sorry for bringing you over here, but do you think there's an adult human female hanging out in that tree? I felt as though I was in a ridiculous horror movie. Not just any horror movie, but one I imagined Disney would make if they grew tired of entertaining children and instead wanted to scare the living shit out of them. And the digested nymphs were 
taking themselves very seriously with their scowls. I closed my eyes and thought about Monica and her brutal ending. That stifled my urge to laugh and kept me still. I needed to stop trying to get the world to make sense. As a writer, in order to truly understand your subject, you have to let go of your preconceived notions of who they are and what makes them tick. I knew I needed to do the same with the vines. You have to really push yourself inside the subject and see the world from their eyes, but how do you do that when your subject has no eyes? I kept my eyes closed and tried to see. I tried to see even though I thought seeing something from the vine's perspective would be impossible. No, would destroy me. The dum-dums had slowed even further like a fading heartbeat of a whale. I felt a momentary calm connecting the sound to something earthly. And in that calm, I asked myself, if I were a giant vine creature taking over a planet, why would I bring back partially digested humans? I got the answer immediately. I can see in the daylight, in the waning light. I need guardians. I will use earth life for my eyes. And what better earth life to use than humans who have evolved to communicate what they see. The inner dialogue was my thoughts, but I heard but I heard it in Mayor Laszlo's voice. I still question that moment. Was I truly hearing the inner machinations of the vine? Or was I just a writer with a strong imagination making things up on the spot? I kept my eyes closed as if I would get confirmation one way or another. Instead, what I heard was the dum dum as they slowed, softened, even further, and eventually ceased. Dum, 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 dum. Another dum never came. In its place, I could hear a sound coming from the sky. Birds. Some of the birds hadn't given up. With their calls was hope. Maybe the whole world wasn't destroyed. Maybe I could get out of this and find other survivors. I opened my eyes and was confused when I found the pitch darkness. As if my lids were still sealed shut against my will, had I momentarily fallen asleep? I knew the digested bitches were still there. I could hear them breathing. I will use earth life for my eyes. And what better earth life to use than humans who have evolved to communicate what they see. I tried to reassure myself if they were human eyes like mine, they could no longer see me. Especially the zombie-like decomposing eyes. But what if the nymphs weren't digested but mutated? The answer came in ethereal voices. No, they're otherworldly noises. The sound was not vocalized, but rang in their throats like bells. They did not ring together or separate, but more like a compromise between the two, like crickets. As the digested nymphs chimed, their throats started to flicker a glow like a lantern first going on, except for the lanterns of their throats fluttered only a moment before they took on the crisp 
neon luminosity of giant lightning bugs. The neon light spread through the vines of their necks until all of their blood vessels of the nymphs were aglow. Their creepy silhouettes swayed to their chants. The vines gleamed too, but to a lesser degree, more like a neon shimmer. I hadn't noticed at first. I was so taken by the nymphs and their singing, as I suspected, the three under my tree were still there. But most of the nymphs were near the bulbous head they were born from. In the waning light, I need guardians. I will use earth life for my eyes. It didn't feel as though I was in darkness. The world looked like it was under the green glowing hue that comes from wearing night vision goggles. As the digested nymphs beneath my tree chimed, I had the strangest impulse to move. Their interlocking chiming felt like a pop song that hooks you in the bones, and I was hooked. All I wanted to do was move my hips and sing. I wanted to climb down to them and dance. That's when I realized that my brain was being tampered with again. I am a misanthrope, remember. I don't have best girlfriends, and I never did. I never in my life wanted to go out to a club and dance. I didn't appreciate the manipulation. The best girlfriend I had was dead. I was tied up in her sweatshirt. What would her sacrifice be worth if I let them win? No, the only girl I would ever let mesmerize me was Monica. Monica. Memories of her pulled at me, the theater show specifically. I tried to resist, but Monica was persistent. I was exhausted and knew in that moment if I didn't give in to her, it would be the femme fatales below that would have their way with me. Monica grabbed my hand and dragged me out of my theater seat. As she pulled me backstage, I remember staring down at our interlocked fingers. Our hands were clasped just like the woman in the painting who had looked longingly at each other. Focus. This part is important, Monica said. I did because it's not something she had actually said in real life. Was I hallucinating? Unlike the real memory, Monica's eyes were intense and serious, like she hijacked my memory for a reason. The rest was what actually happened. Monica pulled me backstage where the actors were cleaning their faces. How do you do it? Stay so still for an hour, Monica asked one of the actress actresses. It's a trick. We're always moving. It's just so subtle that you don't see it. But if you were to take a picture of the show at the beginning and at the end, you would see that the scene had changed ever so slightly from what was painted to the moment directly after. You're so brilliant, Monica had responded to the actress, and they had gabbed for about another 40 minutes. But none of that happened with this Monica. Once the actress answered, Monica looked up at me. She tapped her nose with her pointer finger as if there was a clue there. Then she pushed me. And I fell out of my thoughts back into the horror. One of the digested nymphs was tilting her head back and forth, sideways, scowling up at me as if she were trying to decipher a painting by Picasso. That's when it came to me. 
What would happen if I moved slowly like the actors? I could feel Monica's sweatshirt hugging me. Maybe I could use it as a diversion tactic. I moved my hand to the knotted sweatshirt, slowly. The staring nymph stopped chiming and I stopped moving. Even at that slow pace, I had been too fast. While the others chanted, she kept looking at me with narrowed eyes. I got the feeling she wanted to yell, how exciting, how exciting, but she wasn't sure. I waited for her to look away, but she kept her dead unblinking eyes on me, so I gave up waiting. I started moving again, more slowly, right in front of her fixed eyes. Every nano moment, I thought she'd yell out. I can't tell you how relieved I was when she looked away again and resumed singing. I thought it would be boring to go through every last detail of the next hour. Suffice it to say, I untied Monica's sweatshirt. I let it unravel and angled myself and the shirt over my branch. I tried to aim so it would hit one of the lowest branches so I would be outside of their peripheral view. If it caught on the branch, I hoped it would cause enough movement to distract from mine. If it missed, it would hit the ground and I would be fucked. I delayed letting it go. It was the last thing I had of Monica's, but then a gust of wind came, which was strange since there had been such little wind the whole day. Her sweatshirt swayed to and fro. And then with a sudden draft, twisted in my hands, my eyes caught the writing on the back of her sweatshirt again. Release the things that no longer serve you. I did. It hit the tree perfectly as the trio turned. Instead of yelling, how exciting, they screeched like women scorned. The screech was heard by the digested nymphs further away, and they took on the shrill sound too. It rattled my eardrums with such sharpness that it was as though they were jamming broken glass into my ear canals. The banshee-like bitches screeched at the swaying sweatshirt as if it were a cheating husband. And then their taloned hands smacked down on the vines beneath them with fury. The light inside of them brightened and lit up the points of the vine they held. How exciting, how exciting, they started to chant. I saw the vines clutched, convulse, move. Were these women like solar batteries? Were their vines reawakening? That got my attention. I swung myself around to the other side of the tree and climbed down as fast as I could using the vines like a rope. It was not hard at first, but as the other digested nymphs took up the trio's call, the vines I climbed down started to twist then writhe. I knew that I had to get off there quickly or the waking tendrils would sense me again and latch on. But it was easier said than done. The vines bucked like a mechanical bull and I had to cling to my oppressor as to not be hurled from the tree and break my neck. When I had reached a safe enough distance from the ground, I let myself drop. The vines on the ground moved as well. The creepy yellow-green ones that moved like cobra heads lifted up, but ungracefully, no, drunkenly this time, as if they had just been awoken. I tried to back away and run and nearly fell over. Vines were twisting around me, first up my ankles, trying to tie me to the ground, and then weaved up my calves, my knees, my thighs, my waist. The more I struggled, the tighter they drew, but it seemed like an automatic response, like they weren't awake yet and still more or less on autopilot. I stopped fighting them. 
They didn't loosen, but they stopped tightening. Thankfully, the digested nymphs were still focused on the tree. They pointed their glowing skeletal fingers at it. The vines on that end were not completely awake either. They stretched and craned, but were missing their grabs like claw machines. When the vines around me were up to my chest, some of the swaying cobra vines started to look back at me as if they were roused enough to understand my presence. It chilled me. I could feel their sentiments then. After that, I don't know what came over me, but I pointed at the tree with conviction and I too screeched. How exciting, how exciting. Thankfully, the digested nymphs were in such a fever, fevered frenzy that they didn't take notice of the human addition to their chorus. The cobra vines that had been looking at me craned to look back at the tree. The vines around me released just like that and they all lunged at the tree as if it were the threat. I was free. I left and ran, hurtling over vines. The further I got, the less the vines moved. It seemed though the digested nymphs were only awakening the vines around the oak tree. Eventually I was far enough away that the vines were no longer moving. When I heard the loud crack rip through the air behind me, I didn't turn immediately. I wanted to make sure I was deep enough in the woods, away from the women. Only then did I turn. The vines certainly did take down the sweatshirt, but they had taken down the oak tree too and were ferociously shredding the tree to bits among themselves. I'm sorry, I said. That tree had been my shelter, had kept me safe. The vines were everywhere I walked. The good news if there is even such a thing as good news anymore. It was that the nymphs now seemed to only be the only bulbous head parts of the vine. On my walk later on, after I left Rover, after I left the Rover Park, I came across one other bulbous head with its own digested nymphs. I have a theory that it too was near one of the gatherings. Maybe the gatherings are a kind of home base, as I've mentioned. None of the others saw the digested nymphs, but none of the others came from the, one of the gatherings. I'm the only survivor of that variety. Maybe there's a clue somewhere in that fact. I don't know. I'm not sure I care anymore. It's painful to hope for anything. I still had hope then. Though, so, walking through the vines, headed out of the park, I was proud of myself for escaping the digested nymphs. Anytime the sadness of it all that I lost would come over me, I'd focus on the sound of the few birds in the sky that had made it. I'd smile up at them and say to them, to me, to us, we're going to make it. If this were a movie, I would leave the story here, but leave you with a glimmer of hope. But it's never fucking over. As I walked, I noticed the smooth surface of the vines was becoming warty. They started to turn from neon green to a ghostly blue. Glowing bluish white spores pushed out from the warts. The giant feathery spores floated up like dandelion seeds, higher and higher. I'm not sure what happened to the birds in the sky. They just disappeared. I was too out of feelings to feel anything then. 
I walked like a zombie. My only focus was to put one foot in front of the other. I was sure that whatever those spurs were, they would float back down and kill me too. I kept walking, assuming every step would be my last. As I walked over and around the vines, I felt like the outsider in an alien world, an impossibly quiet world. You don't know quiet until all you hear is wind. But even the wind was not right. It blew glowing spore clouds across the night sky. I just kept walking, no, stumbling through the vines. I guess I held on to the hope that leaving the park would be like leaving Jurassic Park, that I would exit under the sign that said, welcome to Rover Park, our park is your park, and return to the ordinary world. Nope, there is no ordinary world. I walked for miles, numb most of the time. Every so often I would feel the despair would rip me open and the tears would flood. I'd lose myself in grief, slowly slipping lower and lower, consumed by the weight of hopelessness, the weight that comes from being alone. But just as I was so low that I would have to reach my hand out for support, I'd see those vines. I'd smell those vines. And I'd stand back up, walk some more, before I continued the vicious cycle. Eventually, I heard human voices. I followed the voices to a group of five survivors, all with their own stories of terror and devastation. Some of their stories are even more outlandish than the ones I've shared with you, but I can't do their stories justice, only my own. Outside this house, I know the spores still float in the sky. Only one of the, only one of the survivors, an old plump man, seems to know what happened to the birds, but he refused to tell the group. I don't blame him. I've said nothing at all. That's right. I followed this band of five as they went from house to house, hunting for weapons and supplies, listened to their stories about lost loved ones, listened to their cries, listened to them theorize on what these things are and how we can destroy them, all while not making a single sound. I let them think I'm a mute because I thought, what's the point? I had to stop writing for a moment. I thought I just saw movement from the corner of my eye. A little light is leaking in from the window. I look down at the vine that spirals around the legs of this desk. Did it just move or was it just me? So fatigued from lack of sleep seeing things. Oh, right, I forgot. You're probably wondering why I'm only mentioning this fact now. Confession. The other five group members don't just avoid this room because of a broken window. Broken windows are broken by things, and the thing that broke this window ensnares the desk I write at. That's right. I've been writing this whole time with a vine next to me. I just worried that little detail so early in the story might affect my credibility. I didn't want you to start this story believing me to be unre an unreliable narrator. Everything I've said is true. This was my only omission. I'll try to make it up to you now. It came through the window. The study had been locked. One of the others kicked it open. Blood splatters cover the walls and ceiling. 
Did the owner hear the screams from outside and think themselves safe if he remained here indoors, sheltered in place? My best guess is that the vine sensed the movement of whoever was hiding here and shattered the glass to get inside. The person probably died alone. Why am I still here writing this with a dead person's pen? Why didn't I just take the paper and pen and go with the others to the attic? Why don't I just go now if I'm worried the vine is moving? I hear them creaking above, creaking above my head. The others in the attic, gathered together, preparing for a new day. I am not alone. No. I don't have to be alone. I know what I need right now is connection. No. Those five people. So why am I still here writing away? because connection ate the world today. I think I'm more scared of those people in the attic than I am of this vine. I'm scared of getting to know them, connecting, caring, letting their hopes be my own. I'm scared I won't survive any more hope being ripped away. But am I even alive without it? Hope. This would be the time the birds would start to sing I think I hear a hum coming from the vine beneath my legs. The old Emily, the one that would lock herself away in her apartment, has no place in this new world. I have to live not just for me, but for those that I have lost. No, the world has lost. It's time I join the group. It's them I should be telling this story to. If we combine our stories, maybe we will find the clues that will help us prevail. And you know... Maybe there are places in the world that didn't get hit at all. Or maybe there are places that were hit lesser to a lesser degree. And if not that, maybe we'll find others in caves, sewers, underground bunkers. And if that isn't the case either, then there is still plenty of hope because six of us still alive. This paragraph rings false to me. Just words. But maybe with time I'll feel them. How is that for a hopeful ending? <laughs> if it's not good enough, I'm, I'm sorry. It's all I have to give. It's time for me to put down this pen, fold up these pages, and join them. No. Gather with the others. If you're reading this, I hope it's grammatically sound because it means I live to make the changes. I'd hate for my existence to be summed up by such lackluster words. Even more important than that, now that I really think about it, is that someone exists to read it all. Dear reader, I hope you're reading. Much love. Emily Worthington, 2020. Oh my gosh, Jasmine, that's amazing. You did such a fantastic job. Thank you. Thank so you. Man, I'm sorry, I was muted. Jasmine, that was one of my favorite reads. That was just spectacular. Like. Yeah. <laughs> Jasmine is such a trooper. We, um, we, Jeremy and I both know from last year just how hard it is to um, read, and it, it really does take some stamina. So thank you for for doing it and for doing such a wonderful job. Some thank stamina. You. This is the longest piece we might <laughs> ever have on the show, and it you is. Just killed it, Jasmine. You just killed it. So definitely yeah. check out Jasmine. She is a queen. Um, <laughs> seriously, she's amazing. Um, 
check out Jasmine's Instagram. It's it's written right there for you to check it's out. At Jasmine Ashley twenty two, and she also has a website which is jasminemeadows.com. If uh, you have any acting needs, I'm sure uh, she will hire her. Your consideration, <laughs> please hire her. Jasmine, thank you again so much for thank for you. participating in Nobody Read Short Stories, and we're so happy to be able to showcase your wonderful talent with Jeremy's thank story. Thank I you, thank you, so Jeremy, for writing it. I was so happy to bring it to some kind of life in this virtual some world. Some kind, you brought it completely to life. <laughs> All right, thank you so much, guys. Thank Bye, you, Jasmine. Have a good night. <gasps> that was so great, Jeremy. How are you? She really did. She really did. She really, um, she killed it. <laughs> she literally killed it. Screw <laughs> mine's killing things. Jasmine just killed everything. That's right. So um, as some of you may remember from season one, after the reading of the story, we do a short interview with the author. And since tonight's a story was written by my illustrious co-host here, Jeremy Ray. I am going to ask him a few questions oh, about boy. his story. If you have a question that you would like uh, to ask Jeremy, feel free to add it in the comment section and we will do our best to try to get um, that comment answered by Mr. Ray. Mr. Ray. Ooh, so I will it. you? <laughs> can, I, can I do this, the answers in British? No, you cannot. No. Uh, no. Okay. No problem. So my first uh, question is, um, could you tell us a little bit about what your inspiration for this story was? Uh, it was a really messed up dream I had. Like it played out like a movie, like all the details. And I was like, this is something that I want to write down. Do you often get your inspiration from your dreams? Lately, yes. Yeah. Um, I do micro stories and a lot of those come from dreams. Like I, I find it really challenging. Everyone, you know how your dreams are. They're like really strange and like sometimes they don't make complete sense. Like you're, you're in a swimming pool and all of a sudden you're on Mars being attacked by red ants. <laughs> so I find it a nice challenge as a writer to figure out a way for it all to make sense specifically for this piece, because um, I had the meat zombies like attacking people. And I was like, well, this is scary as hell being in this story. And then <laughs> in the dream, all of a sudden, they all combined, like everything that I had in there actually happened. They all held hands. They turned into a freaking vine. And I was like, okay, that that's enough for me. And then they gave birth to demented mermaids. Yeah. So it's wow. a, it was, I, I like doing it because it's a way to challenge yourself into making it a story that makes, I don't know if it makes sense, but like it logically goes from one point of the story to, to the other. Right. No, I, yeah. I think I understand what you mean by that because I know when I have dreams, there might be a cool idea in there, but I'm always yeah. like, that's yeah. not a narrative, you know, exactly, like, exactly. And you have to work the narrative. Right. And that's where the, the writer craft comes in is you can you can get that inspiration from exactly. the dream, but you really have to work your muscle as a writer to to make it into something like the gatherings that's actually coherent. Nobody <laughs> would want to read the direct interpretation <laughs> of the dream, let's be honest. Yes, no, that's very true. It would be sometimes I, I I do a dream journal and I'll just like write down <laughs> my dreams and then I'll go back and I reread them and I'm like, what? It's just like 
one random thing happening after another. And, and I'm like, this doesn't make any sense. <laughs> it's true. So um, could you tell us a little bit, do you feel like you related to Emily on a personal level in any kind of way or like felt a connection to her? Uh, so the answer is yes and no. Um, I am not Emily Worthington in any sense. So her, some of her opinions are not my own. Like, uh, I think sometimes people lose sight of that when they're listening and they think that I'm trying to, like Emily Worth Worthington's an atheist and I'm not quite an atheist. Um, so I would say that she's not me, but I love her. I love everything about her. Like it was really interesting getting to know her. Um, Megan, I think you're like this too, but like when you start a story, you don't know the person that you see. Like they're, it's almost like you're going on a date and they're like, listen, I'm a, I'm, I'm a this. And then you're like, oh, you're a this? Okay, cool. Let's keep going and seeing what you do. And sometimes you got to tell them that they're being naughty and they got to get back in the story. <laughs> but most of the time they actually like tell you a more interesting story than you had in your head, you know, and you just follow them along and you, I don't know, I, I really bonded with her a lot. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah, no, I, I, I relate to that because when I'm writing a story, it, it is a lot like getting to know someone and just building that relationship. And you're kind of stuck with someone that you might not like. Agree, you know? agree. And uh, I know that I've that I've written stories before that I've started out that I liked the person. And then by the end of the story, I'm like, I don't really want to spend a whole lot of time with this guy anymore because it... <laughs> So that is a, thank you for pointing that out. That is, a, that is really interesting. Um, so I have one more question yeah. about the the ending, which I really love how you you kind of give the revelation that she's sitting there with a vine and kind of would rather and in my mind I understood that that she would rather she felt more comfortable with the vines than she did with these humans who were in the other room. Like is that sort of the conflict that you see for her at the end? Or what was, could you tell us a little bit about your intention? With the ending? The ending. I think the story um, is trying to go against what usually happens in stories where the, the character has survived all of this and it's, it's going to be hopeful. Um, she has gone through so much trauma. She has had she, she has put herself out there, first of all, because she's a misanthrope. She put herself out there and she put herself out there in the worst scenario, like meat zombies, like meat zombies, vines. Like she tried to save kids and they were eating like piranhas. Then the, the meat zombies turned into a giant vine that took over all of the planet. Um, so I, I wanted her to be truthful in the sense that she has made it out alive, but she also doesn't know what is going to happen to her. And hope is exhausting. You know, hope is exhausting when you have a lot happen to you. And I didn't know this at all. And I wonder if it was my subconscious and my dream trying to tell me that, but I have, I have struggles with my health. And I have had points where I'm like, I am so tired of all the hope you know, like hoping for something to get better. Um, so in, in that way, I, I wanted to paint that for her and for the mm -hmm. story. I hope I answered your question. Yeah, no, you did. And and I, I really like that. That is a very different type of 
spin to a situation like that because I, I do think normally, like she says in the movies, this would be the end of the story, but she takes it to that next level and she says, you know, I've gone through all of this trauma and I'm still myself and I'm still afraid of those people and I don't know what's going to happen. And I, mm-hmm. there's something for me, there was something very comforting about that truth because I, I felt like throughout it all, she's still preserved her herself and her authentic self. You know, like she's not pretending to be someone that she's not just because she went through this life-changing trauma. Yeah. She's still got a lot of stuff to work on. So um, I really like that. Well, Jeremy, thank you so much for for sharing your story. If anyone would like to buy a copy of The Gatherings, they can find it on Amazon. Jeremy is a published author. For those of you who are listening, he's holding up a copy of his book as we speak. So you can get your own copy of this beautiful lady on Amazon. And you can also find more about Jeremy's um, work on his website, jeremyraystories.com. And you can sign up for his micro stories, which he sends out once a week, which are amazing. I highly recommend you sign up so that you don't miss any of those. And also on Instagram at jeremyraystories. Jeremy, is there anything else you would like to tell everyone about your work? You hit it all. You hit it all. (laughs) Yeah, if you're a book nerd, definitely check out Jeremy Ray's stories on Instagram. Yes. And you're also on Goodreads, are you not? I sure am. Yeah. Yeah. So if you're interested in what Jeremy thinks about other books, you you can find him there as well. So... For those of you who might have been a little bummed that um, we didn't immediately start the show with Cranky, uh, Jeremy and I are going to do a little short Cranky time, aren't we, Jeremy? We sure are. And Megan's right. going to remember to crank Cranky up this We're time. Gonna- <laughs> well, okay. I did crank him last time. You just I didn't did- want to go? I just didn't realize he wasn't unplugged. or Yeah, that he was unplugged. So I'm, we're uh, we're gonna do it short and sweet tonight with for three minutes. Three minutes. All right. So um, for those of you who don't know, Happy um, Indigenous Peoples Day. It's October the twelfth, and in honor of today, I have been reading a lot of what well, just kind of worked out that that this week I've been reading some um, Pueblo myths of the Pueblo people from um, Northern Northern New Mexico. And um, I found this wonderful website that is called, um, let me find it, native-languages.org. And it's run by Native Peoples. And they are um, a nonprofit organization that is uh, just trying to gather more of the Pueblo stories and Native American stories of the oral tradition into a, some sort of catalog so that they aren't lost. And it just really, reading these stories, you know, they're, they're myths that are specific to, uh, to the indigenous peoples. And it, it made me think about other types of myths, like the Greek myths or- Greeks um, are my favorite, the Greek myths. Yeah, and also, but also, I remembered in high school, my one of my English teachers taught stories from the Bible as short stories, and we read them as literature. And so it made me think about, like, kind of how these Pueblo myths are 
are about their religion, but also just about their culture in the same ways that, um, you know, we, re we might read the Greek myths or, um, you know, stories from the Bible. They have a they might have a religious skin to them, but mm. they are very much parables and they have a lesson and they have a moral of some sort and they have, uh, you know, a, a, a narrative. So I, if you are interested in, in learning more about indigenous people literature, I would highly recommend checking out the, the website. Again, it is native-languages.org. Ooh, <laughs> I love me a good myth. <laughs> what crazy are some of your things, talk about crazy things like myths are like dreams like you're one place and then all of a sudden there's like a, a a horse with wings that takes you away and then decides to eat you i feel like i just did a myth myself right there yes that's very that's very good and and with these pueblo myths i feel like there's a lot of connection to nature there's a lot of you know the 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 spirit is embodied by the antelope or is embodied by the coyote or the, the crow and all the lessons are are built within the natural environment and for me you know being the the nature nut that i am i, I found that very cool and also just feeling like um yes we gotta scare out of again it was so quick, you know. I'm used to the I'm used to the longer time. I'm like, oh, no excuses, Megan. You always jump, except for the one time you didn't, because Cranky wasn't cranked. You're right. You're right. Okay, so I think that brings us to the end of our episode one of season two of Nobody Read Short Stories. Yay! Thank you guys for listening, and I'm impressed. Like you all listened all the way through. Like yes, yes, fiving yourselves right now. If you're Thank in a you. room by yourself, go like this. <laughs> high five yourself. We're high fiving you. This is since this was our premiere episode. We we did we did fatten it up a little bit. So moving forward, our episodes won't be quite as long. Sure. Just FYI. Um, but if you haven't already, please go to our YouTube page and like and subscribe. Please comment on tonight's episode and let us know what you liked, what you didn't like, uh, any suggestions you have. We were highly appreciative of any kind of comment you want to send us, um, send our way. We are available as an audio podcast on Apple Podcasts. We're on Amazon now, Stitcher, Spotify, pretty much everywhere you want to find your, your audio podcasts. And if you know anybody that likes audiobooks, be like, I know something that is free and say free that you can be listening to. Yes, ab absolutely. Because you can go to any of those audio platforms and download us and take us with you wherever wherever you go while you're doing whatever it is that you're doing. Yes. So it's um it's very easy. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. And if you want to show us some Twitter love, please use the hashtag NRSS podcasts. And if you like our colors, and also check this out. Like if you like our colors, you can get your own merchandise. On Jeremy is showing off Jeremy is currently showing off a Nobody Read Short Stories tank. It's purple and it has Nobody Reads in gold writing and short stories on the back. He's also holding up our Nobody Read Short Stories pillow. All of this beautiful merchandise can be yours. All you have to do is go to nobodyreadshortstories.com and uh, click on our merchandise. Any money 
that we make off the merchandise above what um, our operating costs we are donating to literary programs. So um, not only are you supporting us, but you are also supporting uh, literacy and moving um, books forward to the next generation. Um, Megan has a website. We mentioned my website, but Megan has a website too. And anytime she'll have updates and she sure will, because she's also a screenwriter, not just a prose writer. She'll let you know her website is MeganAMorrison.com. You should check that out. And last but not least, please come back next week on um, Monday, October 19th for a wonderful story called Increased Tolerance by, by Kay Eason. We are contending with continuing with our eerie series stories in celebration of the month of October. And so this will be a sci-fi thriller about futuristic storytelling got awry. So you don't want to miss it. Bye, everyone. Thank you for listening to us. Thank you, everyone. Have a wonderful night. No one reads short stories anymore. I really don't know what they're written for. Go write a short story and throw it out the door. Cause no one reads short stories. Funny, sad, or gory. No one reads short stories anymore Yes, no one reads short stories